Hi, welcome to Swift Unscripted. My name is Dan Habib, and I work at the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. These Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. Today, we're recording from our Swift satellite office at the University of New Hampshire's National Center on Inclusive Education. We're interviewing Dr. Cheryl Jorgensen, who's an inclusive education consultant here in New Hampshire. Cheryl, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of what got you uh, so invested in this, this issue? Sure. Uh, for 26 years, beginning in 1985, I worked with you at the Institute on Disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was involved in lots of projects related to the inclusion of students with complex support needs, did a lot of professional development with educators, did some leadership training with families, um, some research and model demonstration projects. Then in 2011, um, up to now, 2017, I've been continuing most of that work as an inclusive education consultant, still doing presentations at conferences, doing student-specific technical assistance, and doing fun projects like working on this film. That's great. Well, and certainly you've been a big mentor for me, and it was probably uh, 15 years ago that you were my, um, my facil- the facilitator, the leader of my group at the leadership series that we did, and uh, it's kind of appropriate that we're doing this today on my son Samuel's birthday. So it sure is. exciting. Can't believe he's 18. I know, I know. It's cool. Very cool. He's, he's having a good day so far. So um, let's start. I think it's important for families, educators, for everyone really to understand some of the legal underpinnings to this whole idea of inclusion and inclusive ed. And we're not going to get through the whole IDEA law. We don't want to even attempt that. But maybe you could touch on a couple of things like least restrictive environment that really influence this discussion. Sure. Uh, I think probably the first thing to clarify is that the word inclusion or the words inclusive education are nowhere to be found in the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. However, If um, you go back and review some of the early documents um, that were reflective of the conversations that were happening before the very first special education law happened, the original intent of the special education law was to enable students with disabilities to be educated with their general education peers. And the term least restrictive environment was really meant to promote students' participation in general education. However, over the years, and it's, it's been 40-plus years since that first special education law was enacted, unfortunately, the least restrictive environment principle in the law has been used to, in my view, unfairly and inappropriately segregate students with disabilities. Uh, In the um, current version of IDEA, uh, the least restrictive environment idea is actually pretty vague. Um, In the first couple sentences of the law, it says that students with disabilities should be educated to the maximum extent possible with their peers who don't have disabilities. But further down in the law, it uses the term they should be educated Um, with their classmates who don't have disabilities to the um, most extent um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's easy easy to trip over those words. One part it says greatest extent possible, 
next part, it says greatest extent appropriate. So do you think that people maybe interpret that differently based on which word they would rather kind of glom onto? They, they really would. I yeah. mean, I've often wished that what it would say is to the, um, they should be educated um, to the maximum, maximum extent. Right. You know, not even qualifying sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, we could certainly talk about um, an ideal system of education that was truly unified, where mm -hmm. we didn't have to separate out students with disabilities from their general education peers. Right. And in that kind of a system, all students would be considered general education students, and all students would be entitled to the supports, the services, accommodations, assistive technology yeah. that they would need. Right. To, to make more than just minimal pro progress in right. their educational program. Right, and what, to, what I'm excited about is we're <laughs> going to be delving into some of that during this interview about well, what does it actually look like to provide those supports, and, and so I'm excited to kind of get into some of the nitty-gritty. But before we go there, you know, we, there are a lot of school districts that are, and a lot, most of this country is still systemically segregating kids, particularly with intellectual disability. I, I've done some research for my, the film Intelligent Lives on this, and only 17% of students with intellectual disability are included in general ed by that federal standard of meaning they spend at least 80% of their day in regular education environments. Only 17%. And in fact, 56% spend the majority of their day outside of regular education. And as a result, perhaps, um, the graduation rates are extremely low. Only 40% of students with intellectual disability are graduating with a regular high school diploma by the age of 21. So those aren't great outcomes, I think, for kids. And so you know, what, what are some of the reasons that you think Many districts do say um, they can justify having a student with, with an intellectual disability learning in a segregated environment. Boy, I've heard those reasons over and over again in the last 32 years. Um, the, the four reasons that tend to come up over and over again are, first, that school teams argue that the specialized instructional practices or the supplementary aids and services needed by students with disabilities just cannot be implemented in general education. That's, that's a common reason for student placement outside of general education. Second reason, and these are all kind of interrelated, is that schools may feel that the extent of the curricular modifications that might be needed by some students is so great that they say, gosh, that doesn't even look like the general ed curriculum anymore. Third reason, um, and this may be particularly for students as they get older in their educational career, is that students with more complex support needs need what's termed a life skills curriculum. And we don't do life skills in general education. We only do life skills in that room down the hallway. And then the fourth reason um, is that it's often argued that general education teachers really don't have the skills to teach students with more complex support needs. Um, and I can and have in my consultation to, to schools um, provided answers to overcome some of those reasons that are offered. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think as the course of our conversation is going to evolve today, I think you're going to be addressing a lot of strategies or, or philosophies that, that kind of uh, counter some of those arguments. I mean, you know, there's no secret that both you and I are very strong inclusion advocates. That's been the body of our work. So I think this conversation is really going to be about how do we not let those um, 
obstacles, so to speak, that have been laid out there, stop kids from having, with disabilities, particularly intellectual disabilities, from having access to the regular classroom when we know that research says that 30 years of research is clear that students with intellectual disabilities and other disabilities who learn in regular education environments are much more likely to have better academic outcomes, social outcomes, employment outcomes, higher education, behavior, communication across the board. So we're going to try and give our listeners some strategies and some perspective on how schools are doing it differently and how are including students. And I earlier said, a little, just briefly talked about some of the research that shows it, but are there other reasons, either research-based or philosophical, that you would want to make sure people hear as, as a rationale for pushing hard for inclusive education? You know, why you believe in this so strongly? Why have you devoted your whole career to this? Anything that, I, that we haven't touched on already? I think the outcomes, the better outcomes, Dan, that you pointed to when students are included in general education is a good enough reason. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there are also some deeper philosophical reasons. <clears throat> and some people have referred to inclusive education as a civil right or a social justice reason. Can we really justify segregating, and it really is segregation, segregating a whole group of students with a particular label or particular set of learning needs, if we know that there are research-based ways to successfully include them. Um, I think some of the prejudices that people hold, and they may not be mean-spirited prejudices or beliefs, but one of them is um, people having very low expectations for students who have particular labels, whether that's a label of intellectual disability or autism or, or whether they have a, a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, I, I run across all the time people even talking about kindergartners mm -hmm. who should be in a life skills class yeah. and not have the same access to academics. And that's based on, I think, a long history that you certainly will be exploring in, in the Intelligent Lives film of um, not believing that with good instruction, students with particular labels can learn. Yeah. And that's a very deep-seated belief that's hard hard to change. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, that's exactly what the law passed for, the special education law first passed in 1975, was, was supposed to overcome. Right. Um, you know, for decades and decades, students with certain kinds of disabilities were not even educated at all. Right. And um, as we know from the research since 19... 75 onward, we do know students with those labels can learn at much higher levels than we ever thought possible before. And that's a very well said. And I think along those lines, one of the first times I had heard um, this really important phrase, least dangerous assumption, was when I did the leadership series years ago with you and others. And, and I think that's an important thing for people to hear if they haven't heard it. Can you just explain that philosophy? I think it's in line with what you're saying. Yeah, sure. Um, a colleague of ours, Ann Donnellan, first um, came up with this principle back in the 1980s. And she called it the least dangerous assumption. And what Professor Donnellan said, and what we believe, is that um, the least dangerous assumption we should make about any student is that with the right instruction and supports, they can learn. 
Um, and that when we're unsure when those educational tests that we give students might be unreliable because of a student's communication disabilities, or um, when a student's behavior may be getting in the way of their learning, that the assumption that we make that has the potential to cause the least harm for the student is to still assume that they can learn. Primarily because we know the impact of low expectations on students. Low expectations actually can influence student performance and, and make them learn less than they might be able to if we held those expectations high. That's great. Thank you for, for laying that out. It's such an important philosophy and perspective. So, um, so I think all this leads us to talking more in depth about how can we help students with intellectual disability find success in general education. And you and I have been working closely on this on the Intelligent Lives Project. Um, so let's start with this kind of helping people understand the difference between accommodations and modifications. I think people get very confused about the difference, and I think it's really important to spell that out, you know, the difference between those two things, accommodations and modifications. Sure. Um, in IDEA, students are um, deserving of supplementary aids and services, and accommodations and modifications uh, both fall uh, under that broad umbrella. Um, accommodations are any support that you give to a student that does not change the rigor or the difficulty of the academic standard. So you might most easily think about a student who's blind. A student who's blind uh, would need their academic materials presented in Braille. That's an accommodation. Same academic materials, you know, same difficulty, still talking about DNA if, if the academic subject is science. Or it could be auditorily. It, be just or, another or, yes, that's, or, that's right, sure. presented auditorily. Yeah. Um, a student who has difficulty um, writing with a pencil can be given a keyboard. Mm -hmm. A student who may have um, difficulty processing auditory information um, might be given a longer period of time to complete mm -hmm. a test. Those are accommodations. A student who is still learning um, the big ideas and the essential skills from the general ed curriculum, but who may need some modification to the depth, breadth, or complexity of the learning objectives, the supports that that student gets can be termed modifications. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for example, if a student is in third grade and the, most of the kids in the class are getting 20 spelling words a week, and they are spelling words like because, and spelling words like different, spelling words like um, chlorophyll. A student with a disability could still be pursuing the general ideas in the unit on plants but might not get the spelling word chlorophyll. Mm -hmm. We might use the word, you, that student's spelling words might be sun and energy and feeding and stem and leaves. Um, and those are modifications to yeah. the curricular standards. I remember another example that comes to mind is when you and I worked together on my film, including Samuel, when you were working at Pembroke Academy with a student named Alana, and I remember interviewing her science teacher, and her science teacher says, you know, I had to really think about my curriculum and think, what is the absolute most important thing I want Alana to learn? Let me boil it down to that. And, and we see that a lot in my own experience with Samuel, where his teachers will say, listen, 
you know, Samuel doesn't, even in chemistry, really there are just these things that we want him to <laughs> know. Right. He doesn't need to know everything. And frankly, when I look back in chemistry, I don't remember much, but I remember a few, I remember oxygen and hydrogen, and those make water in some combinations. So there are some things that I was able to retain, not, not being a chemist. So that's great. So let, let's move on a little bit. Um, another another thing that I think is, plays into this discussion a lot that I, I'm not sure people understand that well is the idea of the alternative assessment, because that that's something that comes up in a lot of districts. And, um, and I'm not sure that people you know, think about the role of the alternate, alternate assessment, um, sorry, I might say alternative, alternate assessment. Uh, I don't think they understand the role or the appropriateness of it, or, or especially for their own child, if they're being given this choice of, you know, your child could be on the alternate assessment track. Um, there may be some, I, as I'm sure I've experienced, you know, some, some confusion about the ramifications of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the role of the alternate assessment? How long do you have, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> well, give us the Cliff Notes version. Sure. Um, <laughs> All states give assessments to students usually at the end of the year, sometime in the spring. And, oh, about 15 years ago, um, an idea was put forth that across the United States, there should be some common core of knowledge that all students should be held accountable for and that all, all teachers should teach to. And... Uh, that conversation about 15 years ago led to something called the um, Common Core State Standards. Mm -hmm. Even s states that have not adopted this national set of standards still have their own standards that they, right. that they organize their curriculum around. It was recognized, um, again, 15 years ago, that there might be a very, very small percentage of students, students who are considered to have a severe cognitive disability who even with the best instruction, even with the highest expectations and supports, might not be able to achieve all those rigorous common core standards. Mm -hmm. So an assessment was developed that also has standards associated with it called an alternate assessment. And right now, here in 2017, um, school districts may um, use this alternate assessment in report the scores of just 1% of their students um, using this alternate assessment. The good thing about alternate assessment is that the standards associated with that assessment are aligned with, meaning they're very similar to the same grade level standards as apply to students without disabilities, but those standards are reduced in depth, breadth, and complexity. Let me see if I can call up right here mm -hmm. on the spot um, an example. Sure. So in English language arts, a general ed standard might say that students have to analyze a variety of pieces of literature for the author's voice, the rise and fall of climactic action, um, the setting, the author's purpose, and be able to provide three pieces of evidence mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, for um, their analysis of a piece of literature. The alternate assessment standard might say students must analyze a piece of literature written at their comprehension level um, to identify three main ideas. So we're still talking about literary analysis. Mm -hmm. We're still talking about um, a piece of literature, whether that's what we would call literary text like Romeo and Juliet or informational text like information from a science book. Um, but 
our expectations will not be at the same level of rigor or difficulty for students taking the alternate assessment. Mm -hmm. Now, implications for students who right. take the alternate assessment. It is still a widely held misunderstanding that students who take their state's alternate assessment cannot be in general education, and that's not true. In fact, the most, most recent reauthorization of that No Child Left Behind Act, mm -hmm. now called ESSA, now called, yes, the Every Student Succeeds Act, right. makes it very clear that just because a student is um, pursuing alternate assessment standards and taking that alternate assessment, they cannot be denied placement in general education. That's important. And even if the student takes the alternate assessment, they cannot be denied the potential to earn a regular high school diploma if they meet the school's requirements, course requirements, credit right. requirements for that high school diploma. Right. So if a family member comes up to you, maybe you're consulting with them or just friends with them, and they say, boy, we're, we're on this path now, we're on this juncture where we have to decide whether to go with the alternate assessment, you know, is, is it all or nothing? You know, once you start the alternate assessment, can you veer back into different ways of doing things? And, and what, you know, how do you advise a family like that? I guess, and it may depend in part on the age of the kid. I don't know. Yes, a, a family could decide, you know, I'll accept the, I'll choose the alternate assessment in third grade, but I want the general assessment with accommodations for fourth grade. I'm going to be honest with you. I advise families to stay on the general assessment. Not because I think the alternate assessment is inherently bad, but I, 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 my experience is that it leads to lowered expectations okay. on the part of the student's learning, and that unfortunately it might lead to that slippery slope of saying, well, if the student's on the alternate assessment, maybe they don't need to take science, maybe they don't need to take social studies. And I think that's a very dangerous, slippery slope. Okay. No, that's great. I'm glad to hear your honest take on that. So um, you, you know, in this whole um, discussion, obviously, we're talking about trying to help students be in the general education classroom, in the regular classroom with their peers, learning the general curriculum. They need, there's going to be need, need some things need to fall into place to make that happen. And one of them, uh, there's a term called accessible instructional materials. And I think that's something that we should definitely talk about because it's one of the resources that, that's, a, that's out there that maybe a lot of schools aren't even talking about or thinking about in the way they should. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of, of uh, accessible instructional materials? Sure. And just to add a little complexity to this conversation, some accessible instructional materials are accommodations and okay. some are modifications. All right. So let me give, me give you an example. I am working with a ninth grade student right now who is, um, has some vision difficulties, communication challenges, and um, auditory, um, uh, auditory processing uh -huh. challenges. This young man needs accessible instructional materials, a whole bunch of them, in order for him to make progress, mm -hmm. make more than just minimal progress in general ed. So his class right now is reading Romeo and Juliet. This young man needs an audio version of Romeo and Juliet, the exact play as Shakespeare wrote it, mm -hmm. to expose him to the rich language that Shakespeare used, to give him kind of all the rich background knowledge about, you know, the 
um, the conflict between the two families and the decisions that Romeo and Juliet, Juliet made. But in order for him to demonstrate deep understanding, he also needs an adapted version of mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet. He needs a rewritten version, admittedly taking out some of that Romeo, some of that Shakespearean language that even you and I might have trouble mm -hmm. interpreting and that typical kids might right. have trouble interpreting. And so what his team has found is there are probably 50 adapted versions of Romeo and Juliet already online in various places. Um, they don't have to start from scratch and rewrite every single line. Um, another example of an uh, accessible instructional material that this young man needs is in mathematics. Um, he cannot visually process a quadratic equation. So he needs to have his assistive technology specialist on his team actually create um, a, a, a specialized adapted program. It's almost like an app for this kid so that um, he can manipulate the different parts of the equation to, you know, move the 25 to the other side of the equation and put all the x's together. And he needs visual enhancement to make all those numbers and variables larger. Hmm. Those are just two examples of um, accessible instructional materials. And every IEP has a checkbox. Does this student need accessible instructional materials? And I cannot think of a student with a more complex support need who doesn't need them. Right. So, um, you know, a lot of what you discussed here makes me feel like, boy, those would be those would be handy for almost any kid in the classroom. You know, so how do you, so this veers a little bit into, you know, universal design for learning, which we'll talk maybe more about in a little bit. But um, how, you know, how is it, ideally, would a teacher have, um, you know, these have materials available for all the kids in the classroom, or is, are these really, dis, you know, when we talk about AIM for short, are we talking about just for kids with disabilities? You know, how do you differentiate all that? Um, I've always, I, I still ask myself, if universal design for learning were implemented really well, would there even be a need for accommodations or modifications and, for a student with a disability? And maybe we should just launch into the UD, yeah. UDL because maybe some of our listeners won't be that familiar with the term. So what do you mean by universal design for learning? Um, so for, for your listeners who maybe um, have been in the field for a long time or have an older student, the old term for UDL was differentiated instruction. Mm -hmm. But what we really mean by UDL, it's, it's a pretty simple concept that we would like to provide uh, choices for students in the way they receive information, choices in the way they actually interact in class with information and with their peers and with the teacher, and choices for how they show what they know. So again, back to my example student. Um, this young man, and I would suspect many more students, just like you said, Dan, in the class would benefit from having that, that um, graphic novel of Romeo and Juliet or kind of the modern version of Romeo and Juliet, not as a substitution for the original Shakespeare work, but as, as one choice to help them understand the original. And I think, you know, um, creative teachers, teachers who really embrace UDL, understand that having these materials available um, for every student in the class 
will improve the achievement of all students in the class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see this a lot in, in Samuel's classes these days. I'm finding his teachers are doing a really great job with this. Where we'll, we're using Google Classroom quite a bit, and the, the English teacher might assign something where students can access it in four or five different ways, all the students. They can listen to it, they can, they can uh, watch a video about it, they can read about it, and then often they can then express their knowledge back in multiple ways. And Samuel has, has maybe not a surprise, has come... Um, to like making films, making short films about uh, to do his homework assignments. And, and I think if I was a teacher, I'd probably rather watch a short film than read a, read a paper. Um, but I, I'm seeing it happen more and more kind of as, as I get it, you know, as I stay deep into Samuel's education. Unfortunately, some of the assessments, the mm -hmm. more standardized assessments that right. are used, have not caught up with the idea of UDL. Because I love the idea that Samuel could do a film. He might knowing his skills as a filmmaker, he might be able to do a better job of, you know, that project on Romeo and Juliet than another student who completes the same project um, in through writing. Right. Unfortunately, those assessments, they don't allow that film. They still require kids to write. Yeah. So there's still some um, work to be done in, in making our assessments also universally designed. Yeah, that's a great point. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and the reality is that each district, too, puts different weight on those assessments. I mean, in, in Concord, where I live here in Concord, New Hampshire, Samuel's on track to get his regular diploma, and it's not reliant on him passing something like the Regents in New York or an SAT score. You know, he, he's getting class credit and high school credit for the work he's doing. He works extremely hard on his classes and his homework. And he's on a path to get a regular high school diploma based on the school's own standards, which, of course, have to be verified uh, or in line with the, with the New Hampshire Department of Education as well. So, um, so no, that's fascinating. I think that, you know, one thing that I'm really interested to find out is, is when Samuel starts taking college classes, also, how will the, what will that look like? You know, and I've, I've, been, I've been really interested to see, to follow two of my subjects for the Intelligent Lives film, Nair, at the Henderson School in Boston, and see a very UDL environment where students of all abilities are learning together and to see that presented. He's very much interested in art, and he wants to go to college to study art. And thankfully, that's a pretty universally designed field. Um, but I think about Samuel and his future in college, and, and I see Micah Fialka Feldman, another person in the film, and his experience in college has been very positive. But I mean, do, do you think there's, um, do, do you follow the higher education world at all? Do you have any sense of whether some of those UDL practices and, and some of the kind of accommodations and modifications that help students be successful in school, especially, um, I, I guess, accommodations, are available at higher education? Well, the higher education world has set its own standards for which students can um, can pursue a degree. So, you know, you have to be otherwise qualified mm -hmm. to um, enroll in a college in their regular degree programs. Thankfully, um, through the advocacy of families and some researchers, particularly the Think college folks mm -hmm. in down in Boston, yep. um, more than 250 colleges around the country have um, unique college programs for students who do have a label of intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. Those students won't get, typically will not get a regular college degree. They'll get a certificate, right. but they do have to, you know, achieve some standards in that educational program. Um, you know, it's a much larger conversation about what the purpose of higher education is. But I, I have no doubt that um, even if Samuel Samuel doesn't write a 35-page 
master's thesis mm -hmm. that he can go on and be very successful in higher education and therefore in adult life. Yeah. You know, and, and this conversation really asks us, uh, forces us to think about what is that quality adult life for a student with a disability where he or she actually makes a contribution. You know, what is that job? What is that vocation or avocation? Um, and ask parents to kind of first set that long-term vision that then can help them make those year-to-year -year decisions that seem really hard in fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Yeah, and, and I think a, a really way that we've been able to frame that in our, in our parenting of Samuel is when people start talking about life skills. I say, you know, the biggest life skill for Samuel is to be alongside his peers, you know, being part of conversations, really um, getting him to commu communicate effectively in his own way. That's not going to be developed in isolation. I mean, but that is critical life skills. And another thing we put a lot of energy into as a family, and I think a lot of families do, is the IEP writing, you know, and trying to make sure that the IEP is written in a way that, it'll, that it really aligns with the general education academic standards. Um, how, you know, any, any thoughts on that for families or schools as to how to develop IEPs that stay in line with that, those standards and how to kind of build in whatever supports, you know, maybe be very clear about the supports that are going to be needed to, to help that student be successful? Yes, I do. Um, I have some ideas and some definite guidelines um, that uh, many state departments of education also have guidelines on their websites for how to write um, standards-based and inclusive individualized education programs. And I think the, the first recommendation that I make to teams is that when they sit down to write the IEP, they actually have those standards in front of them. Right. Um, you know, if you're talking about a student who's taking the general assessment, well, let's look. What are the fourth grade standards for English language arts? And to almost start there with thinking about what the student's IEP goals should be instead of saying, what can't this student do now? Um, I, and, and in fact, the, the IEP writing standards writing process that, that I'm familiar with, that I use with families, um, says that's where you should start rather than what the student can't do. Look at what's expected for other fourth graders, eighth graders, 12th graders, and then say, what goals can the student work on this year that will enable the student to get closer to meeting that standard? Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And there's so much more. I mean, you know, there's a ton of strategies that you can put into an IEP. But um, you know, so, some of this can happen, I think, at the individual level, like, like on a family and a team working on an IEP or these standards. Some of it, I think, continues to be at the school level. So we talked a little bit about universal design for learning. But, you know, I know the Swift Education Center has put a lot of effort into multi-tiered systems of support. And I think that's something we should maybe touch on is if you see that as being kind of that school-wide structure of MTSS. What role do you think that plays in this discussion for, for success, successfully including students with intellectual disabilities in, in regular education? I think mostly right now it's generated a lot of confusion in mm -hmm. schools um, because the system of multi-tiered, the system of multi-tiered systems and supports is really supposed to be a general education system. And I think schools are still struggling to figure out how students who have already been identified with a disability and receiving special education service should fit into that system. Um, what I like best and, and uh, try to emphasize with the teams I work with 
is what that very first foundational layer is of a multi-tiered system of support. And that's supposed to be that all students have access to universally designed core instruction based on general education standards. And that those students who don't meet standards just with that core base of instruction, they should be getting extra instruction that's mm -hmm. a bit more tailored to their needs. Um, I know the state of Vermont is one that is working to try to align the special education system of sports with the multi-tiered system of supports in general education. But I think mostly people are just kind of confused about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and again, here we go. Back to the idea. If there were one system of education, one law related to elementary and secondary education that was applicable to all students that still contained some um, protections for students who have typically been left behind, whether those are students with disabilities, students from um, socioeconomically disadvantaged families, uh, students from um, uh, non-white racial groups, with some of those same protections, I still think it would be possible to create a unified system that would work for all students, right. where we wouldn't have to be confused sure. about which box does this student fit in for instruction and supports. Yeah, I often, I really do wonder if we're going to someday be able to look back uh, on kind of these segregated environments like we do now around civil rights and, and race and ethnicity and gender and say, Wow, what were we thinking? Why are we systemically segregating so many kids when we knew it was not necessarily going to yield to better outcomes for these kids and for their families, you know, as well, and for the and for the siblings? I mean, I think about my older son Isaiah, and how much I think more uh, kind of fulfilling his life has been because he's seen his brother have friends, you know, do well in school, be exposed to the same academic experiences as he has. K through 12 for the, for the most part. You know, there are differences for every kid, but he's had access to pretty much the same thing, and it's been, had a really positive impact on him as well. So I think along those lines, I wonder if there's some, we've talked a lot about academic factors that should or could go into the placement decisions and strategies. What about, you know, social relationships or positive impact on kids without disabilities or even on teachers? Are there other variables that you think we should touch on in terms of why this is important to, to work really hard for including kids with all disabilities, but particularly intellectual, as we're talking about today, um, you know, the impact on others or, or, or the, the social impact? Well, the research shows that when students with disabilities are in general education, in natural proportions, meaning not overpopulating a classroom with, you know, half the kids having disabilities, but when there are truly inclusive general education classes, there's no harm, no academic harm or social harm or emotional harm to students without disabilities. And in fact, in schools like you were describing in Mississippi, where inclusive education is it's just a, a foundational school value, there are benefits to all students, including students without disabilities. Um, those students grow up 
having a greater appreciation for differences. Um, those students are not going to be the ones that don't want to have people with disabilities leaving, living in their neighborhoods. They're going to be the ones who understand that if they have a colleague with a disability, that uh, um, kind of a, we're all in this together, let's, let's figure out how we can support one another on the work site to mm -hmm. make things work. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, taking that long view, what do we want those communities to look like? If we want those communities to be inclusive, then it only makes sense that kids grow up in inclusive environments. Um, I'd like to respond to your question about teachers. Sure. The best way to make sure that a teacher does not feel prepared to teach a student with a disability is to continue to keep students with disabilities out of those general ed classrooms. Um, our colleague Michael Jean Greco has done some research that show that teachers' confidence in teaching a wider variety of learners increases, duh, when they have a wider variety of learners in their classrooms. Which could include not just students with disabilities, but English language learners, exactly. students who have uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, et cetera. For sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Wow. Now, do you think that um, when you think about uh, what we've talked about today, I, I know you're also working on a book right now that's coming out um, soon in 2018, um, and, and there's probably so much more in there you know, that we haven't covered today. So I guess before we, we break up uh, you know, the conversation, I want you to have a chance to talk about if people want to learn more or, or some of the things that might be in the book where they can take a deeper dive that we haven't really even touched on today. Anything come to mind along those lines? Well, there's some wonderful books out there um, about inclusive education. And what I tried to do in this book, which is going to be called Creating um, Authentic Inclusion for Students with Complex Support Needs, is to give educators and families more of a step-by-step -step approach. It's not a cookbook, but it does begin where I think everyone needs to begin, which is, what is the vision for this student? What's the long-term vision for employment, community living, social relationships, health, um, uh, and how might that vision then drive or um, promote inclusive decisions all the way through the student's educational career? The book also begins with the importance of um, establishing a collaborative team, because as everyone has learned, no teacher can do this by him or herself. Inclusion is not dumping kids in general ed classrooms and saying, okay, classroom teacher, you do it all by yourself with the 29 other kids. Right. It's really reframing the role of the special education teacher or the speech language pathologist or the OT to be supporting the learning of all students in the class. The book does um, get into great detail about how to write an inclusive standards-based IEP, and there's a whole chapter on supplementary aids and services for students with a, a wide variety of needs. The book talks a lot about building students' communicative competence um, because that's the, that's the gateway to social relationships, to learning, to future job prospects, is, mm -hmm. is being able to, to communicate not only communicate about academics, but to communicate students' deeply held beliefs, their thoughts, their wants, and their knowledge. 
Um, the book also uh, talks about establishing social relationships. You know, and it's kind of hard to figure out which chapter is most important. Yeah, um, sure. Which one's, where do you start? Yeah. Um, and certainly um, the book would enable anyone to pick a chapter that relates to what their particular challenge is right now. Um, but um, it can be used, for example, by a school principal to really think about how might we, from kindergarten forward, begin to include all our students in general ed. Wow, that's yeah, amazing amount of information. And of course, together. ends up with um, how do we think about what where the students going after high school? How do sure. we think about not just work, but post secondary education and and right. life? Wow, well, I'm so excited to see the book. I was really honored that you asked me to write a, a bit of a forward for it, and. Uh, there's going to be a lot in there. That it's such current information. I mean, stuff that you've built your whole decades of uh, your three decades of career. Uh, I'm sure so much of that is feeding into the work you did on this book. All right, Cheryl, we need to wrap it up today, but I really just want to thank you for your time and for sharing all these experiences with the entire Swift community. Oh, you're most welcome. It was great fun. So I want to let everyone know this podcast is going to be, I know, really popular among people. So please share it and download it. Uh, you can get it both on, on uh, swiftschools.org, where you also find lots of resources to support your work in transforming education. Um, and you're also going to be able to download it from iTunes. So people should know that the Swift Education Center provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive support needs. I want to thank you again for listening today. Check out this podcast and other podcasts at swiftschools.org. And thanks again so much for being with us, Cheryl. Mm-hmm.